Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we'll be today. I am convinced more and more every day that there is great reason for optimism for the church in the world, and even specifically for the church in the United States of America. I see renewal coming to our land every day, and I follow different sites and follow different people just to kind of keep an, an awareness of what God is doing. One of the things that I believe the Holy Spirit is doing is uh, uh, I, I, my Pentecostal charismatic background doesn't make me afraid of the word revival. Uh, that is what I pray for in my heart, but I think maybe even a more faithful term would be a renewal of our faith. I see a renewal of, Christi of the experience and expression of Christianity in our generation. And we as a church have responded to the calling of the Holy Spirit to proactively position ourselves to in any way that we can to be part of that renewal throughout the earth. One of the characteristics of that renewal that we are going to see more and more is a return to some of the ancient ways of our path. There are some that are going to be calling this a, 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 an excursion from the Christianity we've known, but in reality, it is a return to a historic expression of faith because so many of us are recognizing that there is a rich, powerful heritage of spiritual practice that leads to spiritual transformation that causes this walk with Christ to be vital and visceral and real, not just ideological. So one of the things that we're going to see in this continued renewal of Christianity is a return to spiritual practice. It comes by many names. You may call it spiritual habits. You may call it spiritual discipline. You might call it spiritual formation. But it is engaging as a Christian in practices that allow me to cooperate with the receptivity of the grace of God in my life that is intended for the ongoing purpose of conforming me to the image of the Son. And we're going to see a renewal of this. And I would suggest to you that what I have become personally convinced of, is, and, that the, and I think that the scriptures bear this out, is that spiritual practice is the means through which we experience our salvation. I am not saying that it is the cause of our salvation, but I am saying spiritual practice is the means through which we experience salvation. And we could even then kind of like challenge ourselves a little further and state it in the negative. Without spiritual practice, we are probably limited in our experience of salvation because that is how we engage the process and that's how it is expressed. Spiritual practice empowers us to remain intentionally aligned with the gospel's truth. I'm talking about practices and habits and rhythms of life that empower us to remain intentionally aligned with the truth of the gospel. And as we're going to see from Paul, he sums it up very beautifully in this passage. Spiritual practice is expressed through dwelling and doing. So if we are in a season when we're interested in the renewal of our faith, or we're recognizing we need to create some room for some growth, some expansion of that revelation of Christ in us, the hope of glory, then one of the things I would recommend is that you re-examine your spiritual practice, in particular the practices of where you dwell and what you do. Spiritual practice is expressed through dwelling and doing. Mark Twain once said that the two most important days of a person's life is the day that they're born and the day that they figure out why. There's a lot of pressure in contemporary America and in the way we deify youth culture that you're supposed to figure out why you're in your 20s. Well, I will just 
for the encouragement or discouragement, I will just bear witness to my story. That was not true for me. In fact, in many, many ways, I don't feel like I woke up to my life until my late 40s and my early 50s. That's the experience that I've had. I, I feel like for much of my life, I was asleep. And I recognize in my own journey that I had slowly drifted into the toxic mentality that religion was about being right rather than being about loving God and his image bearers. And that lulled me to sleep in my soul. And in order to break free of that, I had to be open to a more generous path with new practices. Everyone say new practices with new practices because as long as I kept doing what I'd always done, I knew I would always continue to get the same results. So if you want the results to be different, you have to be willing to reevaluate your experience and your practices and maybe be open to something new. And for me, what I am bearing witness to is the Holy Spirit took me back to the ancient paths of my faith that unfortunately my tradition never really educated me in. And the Holy Spirit took me back, back to, those, to those paths. These practices, I will bear witness, are not only saving my soul, they are saving my mind and my body as well. And for the first time, I'm experienced true integrity in my faith because there is an integration of spiritual health, mental health, and physical health that I had never, ever seen before. In fact, I compartmentalize everything else as being lower and focus exclusively on the spiritual. And so therefore, I began to navigate well the spirituality of my particular church group while my mental health and my physical health continued to diminish until it reached a crisis point in my mental health that I had to confront that what I was doing was not letting Jesus heal me. It was not letting the Holy Spirit take me through a deep process of transformation. I was simply giving quick, simple answers to complicated questions, and I was spiritual bypassing the process of transformation. And one of the ways that I was delivered out of that spiritual bypassing and into the path of ongoing transformation was through spiritual practice. So this morning I ask, what about you? When was the last time you evaluated the effectiveness of your spiritual practice? Is it yielding the result it's intended to yield? And I'm not talking about equipping you to pretend in your small group or when you come to church and people ask you how you're doing. That part's easy to learn. We've all, we all master it very well. I'm asking you in the honesty of your heart, are you really becoming a different man or woman? Is your spiritual practice returning you to the authentic, holy humanity that God has gifted you with? When was the last time you changed your thinking based on a new revelation about yourself or your God or his image bearers? There should always be the experience from one season to the next of an expansion of revelation of our understanding of either ourselves, our God, or our understanding of his image bearers and our relation to them. When was the last time you changed your thinking? Hey, let's go more specific. When's the last time you altered your thinking about a group of image bearers that you were taught to hate? By being willing to stand back and let the Holy Spirit maybe invite you into a more generous expression. Are you aware enough? Are you practicing self-awareness to the extent that you could talk about your spiritual practice? 
that you could talk, that we could sit over coffee and that I could learn from you. You could tell me about the rhythm of your spiritual practice and you could articulate for me how you see it bearing fruit and transforming you. And you could then also invite me to participate in those same practices so that maybe by God's grace, I could also rejoice in the same kind of transformation that you're experiencing. Are you able to do that? And it's fine if it is my spiritual practice is church on Sundays and here is how it's transforming me. I'm not picking on anyone from that. But what I am saying, if you find that your spiritual practice is limited to Sunday and it's not causing you to have a more holy taste for life, then would you take a moment to reconsider the possibility that there might be something better for you that God has? And that might be on the path of spiritual practice. So spiritual practice is the means through which we experience our salvation. Spiritual practice empowers us to remain intentionally aligned with the truth of the gospel. Spiritual practice is expressed through dwelling and doing. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. And I love the way that Paul is connecting the experience of the peace of God with an evaluation and an accountability for well, where our minds dwell and for what our bodies do. Because sometimes the hindrance of the grace of God is simply found in where we're dwelling and what we're choosing to do. And if we'll create some space, the Holy Spirit will, will speak to us his wisdom will empower us to maybe dwell in a more healthy place. Maybe we'll begin to dwell in a place that is more informed by the grace and love of God revealed in the gospel rather than our own trauma, wounds, bitterness, and frustration. And in doing so, we are inviting to an expansive place. So two of the most critical aspects of our spiritual health are our dwelling and our doing. Where our mind dwells determines our actions and our efforts can lead to new ways of thinking. So they are interacted, they're connected to one another. This means that we must consistently pursue a spiritual rhythm that allows us to take time to evaluate our beliefs and our behavior. And as I've said before, an excellent tool for this assessment is just beginning with the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I love, love, love that psalm. I love that prayer. It's a great prayer to start any kind of engagement with examination uh, of your own life and just realizing that the Holy Spirit is there to lead you in that, in, in that, in that movement. But one of the things about the odd way, because a lot of times the spirituality we grew up with was rooted in fear because 
it was the most accessible way to control our behavior or to control a congregation. And, and so oftentimes, um, we're so taught to be afraid of the wisdom that's in our heart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. And can I submit to you, as a Christian, I feel like you should know and believe that the ability of God to lead is astronomically more powerful than the ability of the enemy to deceive. And therefore, don't use this idea of deception as a way of closing off your mind. Trust the Spirit. Trust God. Open your heart. Begin to discover what wisdom the presence of Christ within you may have been trying to reach out and speak to you about for, for years. So first of all, we see this idea of dwelling. What I would suggest that we think about is this. Where we dwell is manifested by the dominant narrative in our mind. So I am talking about that narrative, that stream of consciousness narrative that's taking place right now. It's not you, because if you wanted to, you could make, take a moment and step back in your mind and both hear the words I'm saying and observe the narrative stream of consciousness flow that's going on in your mind. It's not you, but it is a part of you. And it's constantly, constantly flowing. You can do nothing to shut it up or to make it stop, but you can have tremendous influence on the direction that it flows. So dwelling has to do with the dominant narrative. And oftentimes, if we pay attention, what we will learn is the answers that we give in church community are different than the reality of the narrative that we're living with every day. And the thing is, we'll never be transformed by that. If we just get together and pretend by saying the true answers, rather than giving the honest reality of the narrative that we're living with, then, then we are creating a chosen blindness for ourselves that will hinder our ability to continue to grow. So you have to discern that narrative. And, and, and what Paul says is that narrative atmosphere of our minds ought to be characterized by those things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, and praiseworthy. Too often times when we talk about what's going on in our minds, we kind of settle with some sort of thing of, well, you shouldn't think lusty thoughts or angry thoughts or vengeful thoughts. And I'm, I'm not promoting being lusty and, lusty and vengeful, vengeful as virtues. I'm not saying that we don't have to address that, but it's really limited. This is not about not thinking naughty thoughts. It, it is about being aware of the dominant narrative of our mind. And you cannot overcome cynicism if the dominant narrative of your mind is cynical, bitter, and angry. And you just hide that really well whenever you're talking to others. What, what is gonna di direct your thinking about God, his world, and, and your mission in the world is gonna be instructed by that dominant narrative. Now, I am not saying that therefore we can never have a lower narrative or a negative narrative. That's not realistic. Like I said, that narrative exists in some, in some ways separate from you and it will go where it will. So we are gonna struggle with a narrative that's cynical and that's angry and that's bitter. My question is, are we self-aware enough to look at that narrative and step back and say, wait a second, this doesn't have to be the end of the story. I can give, I can live into a larger narrative. 
Now, I'm talking about concepts and ideas that may be a little bit too ethereal, but there are multiple ways because I think this narrative dominates every area of our life. But just for example, a little exercise that I was challenged with. Whenever I... We're just going to keep going. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm not going to share the narrative that I was challenged with. Though, uh, no, whenever uh, I was challenged with a particular narrative of a deep offense that I held toward a particular person. And of course, I'd rehearsed it enough. And then I've even, you know, where you lay in bed and you do those vengeful fantasies about what you're going to say the next time you see them. And it's just going to cut them to the quick. Or, or maybe how you're going to get them in a chokehold or something. Um, and my friend said, okay, that's fair. That is fair for your experience. I can understand why their actions and words towards you are leading you to that narrative that you keep rehearsing. But what I want you to do is I want you to go write down for me and next week share with me a story where you force yourself to write a completely alternative narrative of the situation. And so was very difficult but that week what I began to do is begin to think other than just being a lousy piece of dirt what might have motivated them to act the way they did and as I did I began to write a new narrative and he told me even make it a ridiculously positive narrative that's almost outside of reality so I began to become more generous. I wrote it three or four times, and each time became more fantasticful and, and generous with my narrative. But he was right at the end of the week. The atmosphere of my heart, it, it didn't get rid of the hurt. It didn't get rid of the frustration. It didn't get rid of the need to draw healthy boundaries around that toxic relationship. But what it did do is it freed me from being bitter and cynical about the whole thing. I was able to hold space in my heart that maybe those dark motives were just a projection of the own insecurity and hurt in my own heart that I assumed upon them. And that there, there's a narrative of pain and rejection and suffering that they have also encountered throughout their life that may have informed their reaction to me. And again, even though I had to hold boundaries, I was able to hold them in an atmosphere of grace and mercy. And then it dawned on me, the person whose motives I judge the most is the one who shares my bed. Maybe I can start rehearsing a brighter narrative of my partner than I had before. And here's the thing, it didn't change my wife, but what I began to notice was how forgiving and loving and long patient she was with me and my children. That was there all the time, but I couldn't see it because I was trapped by a darker narrative that was informed by my personal offense and frustration. And so when I, I was able, look, when we change the way we view things, the things that we view begin to change. And that only happens if we have the self-awareness to be honest about the narrative that's dominating our lives and the way in which we could retell that narrative, the way in which it could be different. And maybe, maybe what I could make as a standard as I'm going to hold space in my heart that the narratives I have about my life and about others, although I will be honest about the failure and the shame and the anger and the frustration and the hurt, at the same time, I want the dominant narrative atmosphere of my heart to be that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely commendable, morally excellent, and praiseworthy. 
And I will be so bold to say this. If you have an inclination to practice the most rigorous of spiritual disciplines, to read the most complex books of theology and spirituality, but you are unable to be aware and discerning of your narrative, it will profit you very little. It is spirituality 101. It's not the verses you memorize, not the curse words if you quit saying, not the sensual moves you quit doing on the dance floor. I'm still working on that one. It just oozes out of me. But whether or not you possess the self-awareness to discern the narrative between your ears, are you aware of it? Even when it's not leading you in a good direction, can you step back and discern it? And then can you see that you have tremendous power, not necessarily to eradicate that narrative, but to infuse it with that which is true, honorable, pure, and praiseworthy. You possess that power because the force that created all that we see has chosen to reside in your soul as the hope of glory. It's there. It's accessible. All it requires is a little bit of change in thinking and perhaps a change in your life's rhythm in order to press into it. So then he says, dwell on these things and do what you've learned. Dwell on these things and do what you've learned. So upon dwelling, then we allow the dwelling to inform our doing. The problem that the vacuum of Christian spirituality in the South is we focus on the doing before the dwelling. And so then we create posers who are really struggling with an alternative, darker, sinful, self-centered narrative, but trying to act like altruistic, kind people out of because of the expectations of our spiritual communities. And, and we can't experience transformation that way. For a little while we can, but it won't sustain us. Dwelling has to precede our doing. And we've got to be skillful at knowing how to discern our dwelling in order to trust the purity of our doing. And so, but that doesn't mean doing isn't important. As we establish dwelling, we also, it's, we also hold ourselves accountable for our doing. If we seek to mature in our faith and live progressively faithful to Jesus, then these are three kinds of actions that we are going to have to encounter. Number one, we are going to have to encounter and process the thoughts that we think. Number two, we are going to have to encounter and process the vices that we're called to abandon or the sins that we're called to abandon or the toxic ways of relating that we are being called to abandon. But with the thoughts that we think, the vices we abandon, and then number three, the virtue that we cultivate. The thoughts we think, the vices we're letting go of and abandoning, and the virtue that we are cultivating in our lives. These are the three realities. These are the pillars of the activities of spiritual transformation. And what I would say is this, we almost exclusively only emphasize number two. A lot of talk about the sins you're supposed to stop doing. But the problem is there's not enough instruction about the way we are supposed to be Awakening to an awareness of our thought life and how that can be directed by the ongoing presence of the Spirit. We don't talk about that enough, but really all that we do flows out of what we're thinking. So if we emphasize number two, which please, it is important. 
It is important to address our toxic behavior and our vices, but if we do so to the exclusivity of number one and number three, we're never gonna get anywhere. In fact, I would suggest you do this as a six month experiment. Say, you know what, Lord, with your grace and with your direction, I'm gonna set aside all these anxious thoughts and feelings and disciplines I've had out of trying to get rid of this X, Y, Z sinful habit. I'm not gonna abandon it, the, the process altogether. I'm gonna set it aside for six months and instead, I'm gonna focus on allowing you to teach me about how to discern the narrative in my mind and to be aware of the thoughts that I'm thinking and I'm gonna spend my energy on the virtue that you're calling me to cultivate. So, for example, instead of focusing and reading books on how to not speak angrily to my wife and children, I'm gonna take a moment and I'm gonna get alone and say, God, where does that anger come from? Show me my thoughts, help me understand why is it that I react with such defensiveness? And in the process, I'm simply gonna practice that even if I am angry and even if I don't understand, by the power of your grace, I'm gonna choose to speak with patience and kindness. Now, I'm gonna cultivate the habit of a kind response. We might find that as we get preoccupied with coming to terms with the reasons why we sin and participating in the Holy Spirit's process of manifesting the fruits of his spirit, we might realize five months into it, oh, wait a minute, I, what happened to that thing that I've been spending six years on in my shame trying to change about myself. I believe real deliverance from sin happens mostly imperceptively. It happens not because we're fighting and resisting, but because of what we're willing to yield to. And like I said, I am not saying this is the final word on things, but I would suggest that you take a moment that you pause the war metaphors of fighting and battling. Pause that for a second and introduce the idea of a garden metaphor, that your soul isn't a battleground where you fight a war, it is a garden that you're called to tend, that you're called to empower, to, to bear fruit. And maybe instead of a warrior, I'm a gardener, I might find that through the cultivation of a new way of thinking and a new way of acting, I no longer have to fight these vices because they just are pushed out by the presence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I think maybe we might be getting onto something that is more biblical and less taking its cues from the self-help industry of the dominant world around us. So the dwelling and the doing. Avoiding dwelling and doing must work together as our allies to increasing transformation. Now, how might we put this into practice? I'm so glad that you asked. The vision, we, 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 we share the mission statement of, of CCC with you all every Sunday morning. Um, but I also wanna take moments where I remind you of our vision. In other words, the mission is what we feel we're called to do. The vision is the dream that's in our heart of what it might look like if we accomplish the mission. So the vision of CCC is to be a community so rooted in God's love that we are renewing the understanding and expression of Christianity in our generation. That is our vision. That's what we give ourselves to. And one of the ways that we accomplish the mission and the vision is through the 
continual rhythm of four practices that we pray come to dominate and characterize everything that we do together. And those four actions, those four movements are awareness, learning, reflecting, and action. Awareness, learning, reflecting, and action. And so as we close today, I would like to encourage you to consider one of those activities. Pluck it out. Either do it just because of the mood that you're in or maybe you feel a nudging of the Holy Spirit to choose one. Either way is fine with me because God is in all of life, both the random and the specific. So choose one of those and to consider creating some practices around that movement this week. So for example, practice awareness. How might you practice awareness? These are not the final word on these things. This is me in my limited experience bearing witness to the way that the grace of God has been at work in my own life. Number one, journal or pray with honesty. I was speaking to a friend of mine just this morning about um, a, a, a trauma that, that, that I had noticed that I just was so impressed with how it had been navigated. And, and I was asking about that. And, and one of the things that they said was, uh, part of it was taking advantage of long times alone in the car to be very honest with God. Because when you're in the car and you make sure your phone's off, then you can say to God the things you can't say to Christian people in churches. You can be honest and know that you're going to be heard and that he's not going to throw a lightning bolt down like Zeus. But we so rarely practice honestly. We typically bring to God that version of ourselves that we think in our minds he prefers. You got to stop that. In fact, I will, people want me to be more bold about sin. I'll tell you, it's sinful. To bring opposing presence before God is sinful and unnecessary, and you will not grow if that's what you do. Bring the totality of your virtue and your beauty and your ugliness and your sin into the presence of God and be honest about who you are and what you feel. I find it very helpful to write this out in a journal. I understand that it's only when you turn 50 that you don't really care what people read behind you. Up until then, some of you are paranoid. I could never do that. Some of you might pick it up. Well, you know what? We're in luck. I have two journals. I have one that I carry around, a notebook, and I write things out. I have another one on my computer that's password protected. And outside of myself, only one other person knows the password, and that person doesn't live in my house. Uh, that person has been instructed upon my death, don't make a big deal about it, but get a hold of my laptop, go into the file, find, here's the password, and delete the whole thing. Okay, I just want to promise, you promise me you're going to delete the whole thing. And so that gives me confidence to open up that file sometimes, and I'll go back and read it, and I'm just shocked at the honesty that I've brought before God. But there is a direct correlation between that shameful, embarrassing discourse that I poured out on that computer screen and my own ongoing actual transformation in the spirit. There is no transformation without honesty. So you've got to learn to start praying honestly or journal honestly that will bring you into the practice of awareness that will allow you to discern what is true and what is truth. Because the problem is our narratives may be true, full of true things, but we're not letting the person of truth 
to then speak to those true things. And until the truth is present with what is true, we will misinterpret what is true. And so we allow the true things to have to submit to the truth. Talk to someone, talk to a friend about your revelations, the lessons that you're learning. If we don't practice awareness, we will mistake judgment and emotion for truth and reality. So we have to practice awareness. Our private inner dialogue will never be enough of a guide to the truth. We gotta get that inner dialogue out in the open on a journal, in prayer, on a computer screen, or even better, with a friend. A friend that you can trust to hold space with the sacred parts of your life that you wouldn't be helpful for lots of other people to know. God has given us that kind of friendship as a gift. And not everyone will be able to hold that space with you, and that's okay. But if you're open to the Spirit, those people and those spaces will come in the most unlikely of places. And so then you engage in honest dialogue. We have to cultivate the habit of bringing our narratives into the presence of the living Christ who is in us. Practice awareness. Or maybe it is a season where you're called to practice learning. There is a place for understanding that, that we have to go on a journey of, on, of ongoing submission to wisdom. Learning, by that I simply mean cultivating a lifestyle of intentionality. I don't mean you have to read all the books that I read or someone else's read. In fact, you may not have to read it all because that's not your thing. But whatever your thing is, however you get information into your soul, thank God that you're wired to receive information from that medium and then to begin to exert your power over what kind of information is going through that medium into your soul. That's all. Not prescribing how it has to be done, but you've got to be aware of your own process. Learning is simply cultivating a lifestyle of intentionality. But in order to practice biblical learning, please understand that biblical learning is not hypothetical or theoretical. It has to be practiced. And if it isn't practiced, it will be lost and it will lose its power. So as soon as the Spirit gives revelation, begin to share it with others and to show it in your actions. Talk to a spiritual friend about your, your revelation. Ask the Holy Spirit to make you mindful of when you can practice what you are learning and discovering about yourself, your neighbor, or your God. Practice awareness. Practice learning. Practice reflecting. Simply begin to create space to be a more mindful individual, a more mindful human. It doesn't take a lot to create that space. What I suggest is either at the beginning of your day or at the end of your day. If it's at the end of the day, you're reflecting on the day that you're in. If it's the beginning of your day, you're taking space to reflect on the days and the moments that happened yesterday and engage with three simple questions. Jesus, when did I serve you? Jesus, when did I neglect you? Jesus, when did I encounter you? And you'll be amazed to see that while you've been waiting for God to answer your prayer by opening up the heavens and bringing some vision down, that he brought a person that you didn't expect to capture wisdom from and they spoke into your life. Maybe you caught it when it happened. Maybe you dismissed it. 
But the point of this exercise is if you did dismiss it, the Holy Spirit might bring back to your mind, you remember when so-and-so said this, that's when I was encountering you. Do you remember the moment that you unexpectedly wept over the silly anime that you're watching about the Kung Fu hero? And you kind of felt silly and dismissed it? Yes, Lord. Go back to that place already. That was me. I was using the art that you love to open a window into your soul and unexpectedly speak revelation to you, but you just dismissed it because you're not used to hearing me there. Go back. Maybe in the scriptures that you read, the prayers that you prayed, you just never know where those pockets of wisdom, but you won't remember and you won't rediscover unless you cultivate the habit of reflection. Where did I serve you? Where did I neglect you? Where did I encounter you? Practice awareness, practice learning, practice reflecting, practice action. The theological term for practicing action is repent. It means changing your mind so you have the liberty to move in a different direction. It doesn't mean telling God how sorry you are for the umpteenth time, what a terrible person you are, how disqualified you should be from this, that, or the other. Look, if you need to do that, get that out of the way, but then be honest in discerning your narrative. That's all for you. That's not for God. So, so be honest about that. Go ahead. I'm not condemning it. Engage in the shameful practices, but then allow truth to speak to the true things in your shameful practices and say, now, I know that none of that actually was a problem for you, but it's been a tremendous problem for me, and that's why I'm going through this habit of rehearsing my shame before you, but I don't want to stay there. I want to move on and do something different because I want my mind to be transformed so that my doing can be transformed. We must immediately speak, plan, and act on whatever the Spirit begins to reveal because this is the challenge of the spiritual life. Unpracticed conviction fades rapidly into irrelevance. Unpracticed conviction fades rapidly into irrelevance. If you want your conviction to result in transformation, then go quickly to obey. Go quickly to apply. Go quickly to explore and to share. If we do not practice regular course corrections, then we cannot grow in faithfulness to Jesus. Those daily course corrections are necessary for the ongoing slow-moving process of spiritual and soul transformation to make us the humans God intended us to be. So would you all stand, and as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, I would like to ask you a question. Would you take just a moment, close your eyes, and dream with me? What might happen if the practice of our faith was not primarily about ideology, but rather the experience of ongoing transformation? Doesn't that sound a lot better than just knowing more and being right about everything? Actually encountering the grace of God and being transformed. How might we heal our community if we were known by what we do before we are known by what we believe? As churches, we're so quick to want to let everyone know what we believe and what you might want to consider believing before you're part of our group. What if we tried something different for the next 2,000 years? And we were known by what we did, by the works we pursued, by the beauty of the light that we're shining that then might cause someone to actually be interested in what we believe. 
might possibly even ask us about it. Wouldn't that be amazing? So as you get ready to come to the Lord's table, we'll start from the back corners, from the outside and move around and go back to your seat. The center section, you'll start from this corner right over here and move around back to your seat. We do this to honor communion. We do this to end with reminder of our Lord's death and resurrection. But we also do this to create space now for the Holy Spirit to, to con continue the sermon in your own heart. So this next few minutes is for you to engage with God. Will you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal false ideas about your God, yourself, or your neighbor that you believe and allow to influence the narrative of your mind? I'm not asking you to discern them, but will you just ask the Holy Spirit that if he feels like it, would he expose them to your mind in a way that you haven't seen before? Or secondly, ask, what actions or behaviors is the Spirit leading you to begin to practice that you're not practicing right now?